Hebrews chapter 11, and you'll remember we've called this series, Jesus is Better, um, because it really is that, looking at how Jesus is better than anything we can imagine, anything we can have been through, or anything bad that we may face. And in particularly in this last section, from chapters 10 to 13, uh, uh, the, the theme really is, Jesus gives us a better way to live. Jesus gives us a better way to live. And we've been looking at these uh, examples of faith. Um, a few years ago, I was, in, I was in France on holiday, and we went to a place called Bayeux, and we saw the Bayeux Tapestry. Everyone familiar with the Bayeux Tapestry? No? Well, if you are, you'll know what it is. If you don't, let me explain. It's a 70-meter-long tapestry, which depicts the events leading up to the Norman conquest of England, um, and it culminates with the Battle of Hastings. Um, and if you like history, it's really cool. Even if you don't like history... Um, you have to admire the craftsmanship of this tapestry. It's made a thousand years ago, and the detail is just stunning. Um, Hebrews 11 is kind of like a tapestry. It's like a tapestry like this. We get to see the, 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 the history of God's salvation plan unfolding through the lives and events of people from the Old Testament. And it's almost like every stage of the, of the, that we look at, we, we see another scene in God's unfolding plan. Uh, but if there is a theme, there is one theme woven through this tapestry of Hebrews 11, uh, like a thread that runs right through it. And it's this theme of faith. So even in our passage this morning, uh, you may have heard as Lauren read or may have read it yourself, that by faith is mentioned over and over and over again. By faith, by faith, by faith. And so we need to answer this question, what does it mean to live by faith? We are, as, as people of God, if you're a Christian this morning, you've been saved into God's family uh, because you have, by faith, laid claim to the promises of Jesus, laid claim to his work on the cross, laid claim to his death and resurrection by faith. But it doesn't stop there. We're, we're born into his family by faith, but then we also continue in his family by faith. And what we saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the first half of Hebrews 11 is that living by faith, to live by faith, is to read God's promises into every situation. Reading God's promises into every situation. And you'll know if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all that the life of faith is active. It's not passive. So, so faith isn't just about, uh, you know, uh, believing something and storing it in a safe and keeping it there. Uh, our faith is active because as soon as the rubber hits the road or as soon as uh, something difficult comes along, then we find that we have to put our faith into action. And so living by faith is just actively trusting God's promises and putting them to, into action in every situation in life. And this is what this tapestry of Hebrews 11 shows us, men and women who, who put God's promises into action. And there's four things about, uh, uh, four characteristics of faith um, that we're going to see this morning from this passage. We're going to see faith that is tested. We're going to see faith that trusts God's promises for the future. We're going to see faith that is not afraid. And we're going to see faith that leads to deliverance. And these things, I think, characterize the life of faith that we are called into. So, let me grab a wee glass of water and we'll dive in. Firstly, faith that is tested. So the first scene that we come to this morning in the tapestry is this 
frankly, very strange scene for us to get our heads around. It's a scene where we see Abraham, the patriarch of all uh, Israel, um, being asked to offer his son, to take his own son life as a, as a sacrifice. Now, for our modern Western sensibilities, this is really strange and really hard to swallow, really difficult to get our heads around. The idea of somebody being asked by God to sacrifice their child. And I think that one of the things that we need to understand is um, uh, that, that, that in those ancient times, that, that the sacrifice of children was commonplace in the worship of pagan gods. And one of the things that God definitely does in this episode by telling Abraham, don't sacrifice your son, as we'll see in a minute, is to say to the world around them that, that this God is different. This God doesn't require child sacrifice. But what he does require is faith. And so God has promised Abraham that he will have a son. And through this son, uh, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because from this son's descendants will come the Messiah himself. Jesus himself is going to come from this family line and all the nations of the earth will be blessed, including us. And we are part of Abraham's family this morning. We are children of Isaac and Abraham by faith. And yet, when we go back to Genesis 22 and we find this episode as happening, God tells Abraham to to take his son, who's a young man at this time, probably in his early teens, take his son and offer him as a sacrifice. And so Abraham obeys. He gets up early in the morning. He wakes up Abraham. He gets a couple of servants and they load up the camels or the horses or the donkeys or whatever it may be, and they head off to the mountain where they would make the sacrifice. And they get to the bottom of the hill, and, and Abraham tells the servants, you, you guys wait here, and we're going to go up the hill and worship God. And there, he, he, whether or not the altar was already built that he'd used before, he may have built the altar, but he gets the wood, and he puts the wood on top of the altar, and then he ties his son to the wood. And he has his knife raised, Genesis 22 tells us. He's his knife raised, ready to plunge it into his only son whom he loves. The Bible's specific about telling us that he loves his son. This is not an easy thing for him to do. And he has the knife raised. A voice calls out from heaven and says, Abraham, stop. Stop, don't do it. Now I know you fear God. Now I know you fear God. You see, it was a test of faith. And Abraham passed with flying colors. God gave Abraham a horrible, unthinkable command. And such was Abraham's faith in God that he was going to do it. He was going to carry it out. Now, for us, maybe this doesn't make any sense because not only was Isaac Abraham's only son whom he loved, he was also the key to all of God's promises to Abraham to come true. He was the one through whom the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. He was the one through whom God's salvation's plan was going to come to pass. And so it doesn't make any sense. But you know what? When, when, when his faith was tested, Abraham simply trusted the promises of God. He says, well, if God wants me to kill Isaac, then he must be going to raise him to life again because there's absolutely no way that God will not keep his word. That's just not an option. His word will be fulfilled. And we know that this is what Abraham was thinking because verse 19 of Hebrews 11 tells us that. But also, when we read the account of Genesis 22, he, he actually says to the servants, you guys wait here, we'll go to worship and we will come back again. He knew that, that, he knew that God would fulfill his promises. God, his faith was such that, well, if, if Isaac's going to be killed, the only option is 
that he'll be raised to life again because God will keep his promises. God never breaks his promises. He just trusted, even in this most extreme case, trusted the promises of God. You see, in the moment of his faith being tested in this way, Abraham knew this one simple truth that we all need to grasp. It's more, impo- it's more possible for God to do the impossible than it is for him to break his word. It's more possible for God to do something impossible than it is for him to break his word. Think about this for a second. God, uh, even when it seems impossible, God will always keep his word. Always. Even if that means that he will have to do something impossible like raising the dead. Even if that means that to save the children he loves, it means having his own son sacrificed and raising him from the dead. Now, this should be a comfort for to us. It really should. Because what this is saying to us, what we can learn from this scene in this tapestry is that no matter how dark things get, no matter how desperate things may seem, God will always keep his promises. It's faith 101. God always keeps his promises. And our faith will be tested. We know this. We're going to read in a few seconds uh, verses from other books in the Bible that will show us this. But our faith can be tested in various ways. And I read something this week by Rick Warren, and he gives us these six helpful categories of, of ways our faith is often tested. Firstly, it may be a new task, a new, something new that God is calling us to do. And so we, and we're forced to ask the question, what, Lord? What is it? What is it you're calling us to do? Secondly, a, a major change. Maybe it's like Judy, being called to move to a new city, to minister to a new group of people, whatever it may be. And it forces us to ask the question, where, Lord? Where are you leading me here? Thirdly, and I think this is a common one for us all, a delayed answer. You ever been asking God for something, praying for something, and it doesn't seem to be coming? And it forces us to ask the question, when, Lord? Fourthly, maybe it's an unsolvable problem. You just see, you just think, there is no way out of this. I can't see a solution to this. And it forces us to ask the question, how, Lord? How on earth, Lord? I mean, I have a friend, and he's been, uh, he's been praying for his same friend, uh, for years and years and years, and, and a few of us have, and this guy still isn't a Christian, and you're kind of going, how, Lord, will this guy, it seems so far away, how will he ever be saved, but yet we keep praying because we trust that God will keep his promises. Fifth, a senseless loss. You ever had someone uh, die and it seems to make no sense? I remember that was one of the things that um, when my sister passed away and she was young, uh, in her 30s, and, and we just asked that question, why, Lord, why? Why, God? This doesn't seem to make any sense to us. Real testing of your faith. Or sixth, a prolonged pain. So maybe some of you have health problems or know someone that's had a health problem. And you're asking, how long, Lord? Isn't that one of the most common questions in the Psalms? We read those prayers. How long, Lord? How long will you let me suffer in this way? And each of these situations, all of these things that God uses to test our faith, And our job, our response, is to believe the promises of God. To put our faith into action. Recently, I experienced closely a mom and dad who had to say goodbye to their five-month-old baby girl. They had to bury their baby girl. And what I saw in them was living faith. 
real faith, not like Rachel said earlier, like slapping a, a smiley face on whatever it was she said. It wasn't like that at, at all. This, this, these parents, in real pain, through salty tears and gritted teeth, saying, Lord, I trust you, but I don't understand this. That's what living by faith means. That's, that's how you respond correctly when your faith is tested. And, and God is not vindictive. God tests our faith for our benefit. He tests our faith for one reason. Steadfastness, perseverance, so that we can make it to the finish line. To get us to the end of the race. Uh, the, the book of Hebrews, and then if you know your Bible, after that in the Bible comes James, and then Peter. Um, and, and all those three books have a similar context. They're all written to believers who were on the cusp of persecution. So things are pretty tough for them, but real persecution is about to come. And they're, and they're all tempted to shrink back. Even in the book of Hebrews, it seems like maybe the, sh- the church is starting to actually shrink in number as people fall away. And here's what Here's what James, written to a similar um, context, says. James 1 verse 3 says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Likewise, 1 Peter 1 says, uh, in verses 6 and 7 says, And this you rejoice, for though now for a little while, if, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, listen to this, the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like precious metals that are refined to get, to get rid of all the impurities. I'm not sure how this works. I think it's called smelting, I think. Um, but the impurities are burned off. So our faith is purified through testing like that. And our faith is tested. Why? So do we make it to the end? Because the revelation of Jesus Christ is coming. The day of Jesus is coming. And we're tested in our faith so that when Jesus comes, not as a baby in a manger this time, but in power and in glory to conquer his enemies, we'll be the ones praising his return. We'll be the ones riding out to meet him as he comes. Not trying to hide from his judgment. That's why our, our faith is tested. And so the, the question is, what will we do when the testing comes? Will we be like Abraham? Will we simply obey and trust him? Will we shrink back? Can we take comfort in this amazing news that God always keeps his promises, even when it seems impossible? Or will we shrink back? I read this this week, before I move on, um, by someone I'd never heard of before. So, I, I mean, he could be a heretic, I'm not sure, but uh, what, what he said here is really, really good. Um, and I read this and it just struck a chord with me. This is uh, someone called Bishop Festo uh, Kivangeri. So if you know who he is, then. Um, but he was writing a thing called When God Moves in Revival. And he, and he says this, The cross is practical. It is God moving in love to meet violent men and women facing violence in suffering for us. Your faith was born in violence. The Christian is not scared when the whole world is shaking. Your faith was born on Calvary. It can stand anything. It is an all-weather faith. Don't imagine you can, be, you can only be a Christian when everything is smooth. 
Christians shine better when everything is just the opposite. Your faith was born in blood and sweat in the loneliness of Calvary. You can stand any test. God is able and he will keep us to the end. Isn't that true that our, our faith shines better when things aren't smooth? God is able. We trust his promises and we obey him even in the darkest tests. Let's move on. Faith then, we see the next characteristic of faith is faith that trusts God's promises for the future. So imagine we're moving along the tapestry and the next set of scenes we come to um, uh, seem a little bit strange again um, because they're all to do with old men dying, okay? And, and, and specifically what these old men did in their dying moments. Firstly, we see Isaac. Isaac is not the young man anymore uh, that he was in the previous scene. Now he's in his old age. And he's blessing his sons, Jacob and Esau. Then we see Jacob blessing his grandsons, the sons of his son, Joseph. And perhaps the weirdest of all, we see Joseph, when he is dying, giving the Israelites instructions about what to do with his bones. Which is a really weird thing. So what's going on? Well, the one common theme in each of these three scenes with these, with these men is that none of these men lived to see God's promises being fulfilled. They didn't live to see it. But they all behaved in ways that showed that they trusted that God's promises would come true. Isaac had received the promise from God, or for a promise from God from his father Abraham. And just like Abraham, he didn't live to see his promises fulfilled. And now, when Isaac is about to die, he passes the blessing on to his sons. Same with Jacob. He had received, uh, he had received uh, the promises of God from, from Isaac, but he didn't live to see them fulfilled. In fact, probably from our human point of view, with Jacob, it seems like things are taken a step back because Jacob and his family were at one point in the promised land, even though they were in tents. But when Jacob is about to die, when Jacob dies, the people are in Egypt. They're further away from the promised land. Even so, he trusts that God will keep his word. And so he passes on the, the blessing to his son, Joseph, and the Joseph's sons. Come here, bring your boys over here. I want to bless them. He puts, her, he puts his hands on their heads and he blesses them. And it's, it's in that culture, it's a way of saying, keep the faith. Remember what God has promised. I was given this promise by my father, and now I give it to you. And your job now is to be the promise keepers and remind people what God has promised. Remind us. Remind the people. Be in charge. Spread, that, that even though we may not see, uh, we may not live to see this fulfilled, but God will keep his promise. I think the fact that they weren't in the promised land meant that Jacob didn't believe God would keep his word? No way. He knew that the ability of God to keep his word had nothing to do with him and his circumstances. If God said it would happen, then it would happen. And so he says, boys, come here. Take up this mantle. Keep the faith. God is going to bring redemption for his people. Remember the word of God. Teach the word of God. Spread this message of promise to our people. Same with Joseph. Joseph came to the end of his life. And, and I don't have time to go into the backstory of all these people because it take too long. Well, you can just go and read the book of Genesis and then into Exodus and, and you'll get a really good idea. 
when Joseph, he came to the end of his life, not only was he in Egypt, but he was an Egyptian. He, he looked like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian, so much so that his brothers originally didn't, uh, initially didn't recognize him. In fact, he was the prime minister of Egypt. Even so, he trusts the promises of God. Now think about this. The second most powerful man in, in all of the Egyptian empire, he, could, he should have had a state funeral. He should have had the big tomb that all the Egyptian princes and kings were famous for. They were buried with their, uh, these elaborate tombs decorated the inside. They were buried with their gold and their treasures and their weapons and their chariots to prepare them for the afterlife. And Joseph says, no, no, I'm not going to be here for eternity. This is temporary. He says, you know what you do? Take my bones and put them in a box. <laughs> That's what Joseph says. Put my bones in a box because God will keep his promises and God is not done with us yet. And when God does keep his promises and we go up out of Egypt, you take my bones up out of Egypt too. And in the meantime, when somebody says to you, what's with the bones in the box? You say, God's not done with us yet. His promises will be fulfilled. He will rescue us. God's plan of salvation will come to, place, come to pass. And no matter how hard things get in the future, remember this. Look at the box of bones. Remember the promise. Trust God. Even in his dying moments, Joseph trusts the promise of God. Listen, God isn't done with us yet. He will fulfill his promises. We trust that future that he has promised to us. God tells us in his word that Jesus will return. We might not live to see that. I kind of hope I do. I really hope I do. It would be great. But we might not live to see that, but it will happen. There is a bright future for the people of God. And if you are in Jesus this morning, no matter how dark or desperate things get for us, God will keep his word. It's a done deal. So we don't, we don't try to find immortality in the things of this world. Because everything this world has to offer no matter how successful or wealthy or comfortable we become, ultimately, it's just like the inside of an Egyptian tomb. It may look nice and may be filled with treasures, but at the end of the day, it's still a tomb. The future ahead of us who are in Jesus is far better than anything we can have in this life. God has promised it, and so we know it will come to pass. Now, in real terms, what does this mean? In real terms, this means if you are struggling today, if you feel overwhelmed, if you are beat up, maybe you even feel like Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, you feel like, oh, I'm at the end of my life here. Simply trust the promises of God. Rest is coming. Hope is coming. Home is coming. Peace is coming. Justice is coming. Joy is coming. God has said it, and so it's true. Instead of losing hope, we live in a way that shows our hope in the future that is ours. Isn't that what our city needs right now? A future of hope? You know, I, I, used, to work with, um, I used to work with homeless youth a long time ago. Loved it. And, you know, someone said to me the other day, like, you know, the, these young people, they're rioting. They're just throwing away their futures. And, and I'm saying, no, they're not. This is, this is their future. This is what they want because they don't know there is anything more than this. 
Not we as peacemakers and people of hope. We go into the world. We go by faith to these people. We say there is a, a future far, far brighter than anything you can build for yourself right here. I saw a bit of a show on TV last night. Uh, Gardner's, you know Gardner's World? That's what happened to us in lockdown this year. Me and Haley started watching Gardner's World. Um, so relaxing. I love it. Anyway, there was a woman on that um, a TV presenter and, and her husband was in hospital for over a year with COVID. And during that time, her and her kids started planting things in the garden. Things like vegetables that would have a crop in the, in the autumn time. Bulbs that would bloom into flowers in the spring. And, he, and it struck me that even in the middle of her, her darkness and in the uncertainty of that, she was planting things that would have a future yield. Planting for the future. And this is what we, uh, as people of faith, do. We look around the world, and, and maybe even like Jacob, we go, well, things are going backward because now we're in Egypt. In Belfast, it, thing, it feels like things are going backward, and it may seem to the naked eye that, that God is far from fulfilling His promises. And yet, we by faith choose to plant things that will have a yield in the future. We invest in the kingdom of God because we know that will last. So we love our neighbors. We strive to put sin to death in our lives. We we share the hope that we have in Christ and we're glad in our suffering. God has said it. He's proved it in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so no matter how dark things get, we trust it and we plan for it. Be encouraged, church. God is far from done with us. His day is coming. The day of Jesus is coming. The morning, the dawn when Jesus will return is coming. And we have faith. We hold those promises and we pass them on. And now, again, as happened the last time, it feels like time is moving really quickly. Uh, Last service I did say it probably feels for you that time is moving really slowly. Uh, For me, it feels like it moves really fast when I'm up here. Third characteristic of faith we see from this passage this morning We see that faith is not afraid. Faith isn't afraid. The next set of scenes are the most famous in this tapestry. Like the scenes of the Battle of Haston in the Bayou Tapestry where I think it's Harold. Is it it Harold that gets the arrow in his eye? Yes. Thank you, Mark. Mark knows. Um, That's the most famous scene from that tapestry. (laughs) He he remembers that he was there. Um, The scenes of Moses are the most famous because Moses was the hero Moses was the hero of the, the Israelites. He was revered. And so I love that the, the author of Hebrew actually focuses in firstly on the faith of Moses' parents, just to kind of humble him down a wee bit or say, here's where he came from. Generations after Joseph has died, the people of Israel are still in Egypt, but things are not going well. They're no longer citizens, they are slaves. They're no longer guests. They're, they're at the bottom uh, rung of the ladder. They don't have any political rights. They don't have any human rights. They're forced to labor for the empire, building great cities for the riches of the pharaohs. And the pharaoh of the time is worried that they will rise up and become a great army and and overthrow the empire. And so he gives this horrible command that every Hebrew baby boy that is born must be killed. It's horrifying. It, It makes our skin crawl when we think about how many baby boys were killed during this time. But when Moses is born, his parents see something in him, right? Actually says here that the, um, the, 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 his parents saw that the child was beautiful. Now, every 
parent thinks their child is beautiful. That is not always the case, unfortunately. But every parent thinks that. But what is actually going on here is that what this word beautiful actually uh, means that there was something about him. They saw something in him. It was like God had marked this child and his parents by faith recognized this. And so they are not afraid to disobey the king. And they hide the baby. No one's killing this baby. By faith, we trust that God has something for him. And so they hide the baby for three months. First at home and then, as you probably remember from Sunday school maybe, in a basket, they put him at the edge of the river. And they get his big sister to come and watch over him. And then in this incredible set of events that could only be orchestrated by God, so, it's so unlikely to have happened that it could only be orchestrated by God. Pharaoh's daughter, that the princess of Egypt comes and finds a baby. She's down in the river to bathe and she sees the basket and she opens the basket and she finds the baby and she falls in love with her and she says, I, I want to keep this baby. And then... Uh, uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, says, hey, how about I get you like a Hebrew you know, nurse to come and care for this child and raise it up? So God actually ordains it that Moses uh, is brought up as a prince of Egypt, but is also brought up by his own mother being taught the promises of God. And then we fast forward to when Moses is 40 years old and he takes a stand. He sees the mistreatment of his own people and he aligns himself with them. Moses aligns himself with the Israelite slaves. Now think about this for a second. He gives up power. He gives up a name. He gives up wealth. He gives up luxury. He gives up probably the prospect of a very powerful future. Maybe he could even have gone on to be Pharaoh himself. And he says, you know what? I would rather suffer with the people of God than align myself with this empire. All the riches, all the palaces, all the wealth, all the fame, all the power was worth nothing, nothing to him compared with following God. The author of Hebrews actually says that he suffers, he chooses to suffer in the same way Christ suffered. He, identified, he identifies with Christ, just like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 when he says, verse 7, whatever gain I had, Paul had gain. He used to be called Saul. He was a wealthy man. He was a Pharisee. He was well-educated. He probably had followers. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. The word is actually dung. It's excrement. I count all things as dung. In order, in order that I may gain Christ. You see, Paul knew, just as Moses knew before him, you can't align with God and the world. Those two things are not compatible. You can't have an allegiance in both. We can try. I tried for a long time. And let me tell you, it does not make you happy. If you try to have one foot in both camps, you're never able to fully enjoy the world because always in the back of the mind, you know that there is more than this. And equally, you'll never know the fullness of joy in Christ. Yes, you might lose some friends. Yes, you might lose some opportunities. 
But you're never going to know. But but you'll have full joy in Christ when you take a stand for Him. Like Moses, we have to choose. Are we going to choose to be of the empire, or are we going to choose to be of God? See what happened was Moses realized that he could no longer go through life with a hidden faith. That's not how following Jesus works. Yes, we have a personal faith, and it's great. We have a personal relationship with Jesus, and it is personal, it is intimate. But a personal faith is not, is not a private faith. Our faith is not private. And if we really are in Jesus, then there will be times when our faith just doesn't sit well with the values of the world. And in those moments, we have to decide, are we going to shrink back? Or are we going to be like Moses' parents and Moses and not be afraid? They were both not afraid. I guess the question for us is, are we going to stand with Jesus no matter the cost? Hebrews and James and Peter, as we saw, is written to this context of where persecution is, 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 over the, is just over the horizon. It's not quite here yet. And because of this, I think these books have so much to say to us. In the past few weeks, we've seen Christians in Dublin arrested for worshiping Jesus. Uh, We've seen in London a Good Friday service broken up by the police. We are, I believe, in our time, quickly moving uh, from a place where being a Christian makes you a bit weird to being a Christian brings open persecution and opposition. I believe that's going to happen. We will be openly rejected and even worse for our faith. Maybe some of you have experienced this already. I was thinking of the situation that that uh, Moses' parents found themselves in. Command to kill this baby. And we already have Christian healthcare workers in our country who are forced to carry out abortions. And And the question is, who are you going to serve? Will you not be afraid in faith to disobey the king's ruling in order to save the life of a child? And more and more and more, these choices are going to come up. and We have to decide, will we fear the world or will we fear God? Will we choose Jesus no matter the cost? There is a cost to following Jesus. Of course there is. So many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, and they are our brothers and sisters, Follow Jesus publicly at the cost of their lives, at the cost of their freedom. Are we willing to take a stand? Are we, say, are we willing to say, Lord, you know what? I need help to not be afraid. Give me faith that isn't afraid to stand up and be counted among your people because I know you only have good things promised for me. I know that no matter the cost, the reward will far, outpa- far surpass the cost. And Moses did this because he saw him who was invisible, right? That's what verse 27 tells us. His eyes weren't on all the power and wealth around him. He knew that Pharaoh was scary and powerful and terrifying. But Moses could see God by faith. Moses knew where the real power lies. He could see by faith who's really in charge. And so be encouraged No matter how scary or powerful the powers against us may be, when we take a stand for Jesus, look to the invisible one. 
See that Jesus actually rose from the dead and he actually sits on a throne. No one can stand against him because Jesus has won. By faith, we share in his victory. Finally then, faith that leads to deliverance. And I've really got to rush through this and I'm sorry about that. These last few scenes, we see uh, Moses keeping the Passover. We see the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea. We see the walls of Jericho falling down. We see Rahab confessing her faith in God and being saved. And we don't have time to go into all the details of these scenes, but here's the point of all these scenes. The people here believe God and they, obey, they believe and obey God's word as an outward confession of their faith and it leads to their deliverance. Right. And the, key, the key to this is hearing God's word and obeying it no matter what. Um, think about the Passover. This is a strange command. Um, the destroyer is coming. Um, but if you kill a lamb and put the, the blood on, the, on, the, on your doorposts, um, you'll, you'll be saved. Is this what we would do if we were in charge? Probably not. We'd probably, I was thinking, what would I do? I'd probably try and like, you know, smuggle people out of Egypt. I'd probably try and like maybe dig a tunnel or something or I don't know, something like you would see in a movie. That's what I would try and do. Think about the Red Sea. The enemy's coming up behind. There's an uncrossable sea in front. And God says, Moses, hold out your stick. <laughs> and then when I tell you to walk, you guys walk. I'd be like, God, are you serious? There's an army coming behind us and there's a big sea in front of us. But Moses says, well, God, you're telling me to hold out my stick. So hold out the stick it is. The walls of Jericho. This is a, a, a fortress city. And God says, Okay, guys, here's the plan. I want you to walk around the city once a day for six days in complete silence. And then the seventh day, walk around the city seven times, blowing your trumpets, making as much noise as possible. God, are you serious? Have you seen those battlements? Have you seen how unsurmountable this object is? Have you seen their armor? Shouldn't we be building a battering ram to smash down the gates? each of these cases, when the people simply obey God's word, no matter how strange the command may seem, no matter how weird it may make them seem to, seem to the world around them, God delivers them. That's what happens when we obey God. Living by faith is not about doing things our own way. It's about doing things God's way. It's about simply taking him at his word and doing what he says. I, think about my kids I tell them when to cross the street. I take them by the hand and I say, now it's safe to cross. And if they listen to me and obey, which doesn't always happen, <laughs> then they will get to the other side safely. If, if I let them go ahead, well, do your own thing, see what happens. You'll be hit by a car. Living by faith is simply obeying God's word and putting it into practice. No matter how much better we think our ideas may be, they'll never lead to our deliverance. And you can prove this in your own life. Just think for a second. Think of a time in your life that things have gone wrong. That, that was disastrous. In that moment, it went, leading up to that event or those things that went wrong, were you obeying God? <laughs> Or were you disobeying God? And I guarantee you that the answer is probably disobeying God. I'm not saying that obeying God always leads to a happy, you know, 
it always leads to happiness. I'm not saying it always leads to health, wealth, and prosperity. That's not the case. But when disaster happens, it's usually because we've disobeyed God. None of us like being obedient, do we? The fall and sin has robbed us of the joy of willful obedience. We, we don't really know what that feels like. It takes a long time, I think, in your Christian life to learn willful and joyful obedience. The joy that comes from just simply obeying God. And our obedience isn't to some dictator. Our obedience is to a, a good and, and loving Father who has only good intentions for us. And when we follow His ways, He will deliver us. We will reach the other side of the Red Sea. The walls will come tumbling down. The destroyer will pass over us. And I love Rahab. If you just give me a couple more minutes to talk about Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute. The spies from the Israelites had gone into the land of Canaan to check it out and see what kind of opposition they were up against. And they meet Rahab. And Rahab, by faith, just believes the message they bring. She believes in God. She actually, you can go back and read this in Joshua. She actually believes in God. She confesses her faith in God. And because of that, she is saved. When the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, her and her family are saved. Not because of anything she did, but simply because she believed the message that was given to her. So what about you? What about me? Are we going to believe the message that is given to us? Maybe you've never believed. Maybe you've been to church a whole bunch of times in your life and you've never believed the message. Can I just say it's the only way to be delivered. It's the only way to be saved. To believe this message. Believe that God has a plan of salvation. That Jesus' death and resurrection wasn't in vain. That Jesus' death and resurrection is our way to salvation. Do we believe that as Christians? Are we going to live by faith? Are we going to take a stand? Are we going to let our faith be public? Are we going to endure when we're tested? Can we grasp by faith that future, that glorious, happy, joyful, contented future that God has for us? And we're going to come back to this next week, but remember this, in all of this, uh, we look at these people, these men and women, and they are for our encouragement in the same way as, as, as we can look to each other as encouragement. But the goal is to see how each of these men and women was pointing forward to someone even greater, was pointing forward to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the better Abraham. How? Because through his death and resurrection, he becomes the head of a brand new family, a brand new people who believe in him. Jesus is the better Isaac and Jacob and, and, and Joseph. Believing in the future that God has for his people. Uh, not dying before the promise is fulfilled, but in his case, dying so that the promise can be fulfilled. Jesus is a better Moses. He rejects all that the world has to offer. He defeats not just a king, not just a pharaoh, but defeats sin and death and hell and the devil himself. It's only by looking to him that we can live by faith. I don't want this to be overwhelming. I don't want us to be discouraged. I want us to be encouraged that we can willfully and joyfully obey God because of that great future that we have ahead of us.
Because his promises do come true. Because he isn't done with us yet. And even though you feel like my faith is being tested, you can say, God, I know that your promises are coming true. And so I'm just going to follow you no matter what. May we just have strength and faith to do that.